My second quote for our second poet is, in a second, I knew it was your voice speaking by Philip Larkin. In a second, I knew it was your voice speaking, caught along the wind. For a second, I lived through the summer weeks and others, sometimes finding what I had hoped for, what I thought with heart and mind. Selina Tusitala Marsh is one of the unique caught along the wind voices of the Pacific. She's an award-winning Auckland-based Pacific poet and scholar of, uh, of Samoan, Tuvaluan, English, Scottish, and French descent. She lectures in creative writing in Māori and Pacific Literary Studies at the University of Auckland. Her work's been widely published, and recently she performed for the Queen as, as the 2016 Commonwealth Poet. Please welcome Selina Tusitalamash. Happy National Poetry Day. New Zealand's a lucky country. Aotearoa land of divine poetry where Papa Tua Nuku and Rangi, lovers of land, sky and sea, progenitors of Māori, yes, New Zealand's a lucky country. Lucky the brothers were restless sons. Lucky they warred when dark had won. Lucky they longed for the light of the sun and the warmth of the open air. Lucky Tane was the heart-led son, seeking bloodless revolution. Lucky he had the strength to stand and pry his parents apart. Lucky the lovers loved so much, missing the caress of each other's touch, for Rangi cries tears from the sky so freely, and Papa's fecund soil so healing giving us Tane Mahuta's forests of jade green, rivers, lakes, underground springs, a green belt round this nation's hips, kissed all over by Moana's blue lips. From Te Waipounamu to Te Ika Amaui, green stone to fishtail, lucky, lucky country. Thank you. Paul Miller gave us one of two Seamus Heaney quotes to think about when we wanted to think about what poetry meant to us. And the quote that meant a lot to me was this. Seamus Heaney writes, poetry is language in orbit. And so of course I went and looked up the rest of the quote and it reads, poetry is language in orbit. It runs on its own energy circuit and the energy coursing in the circuit is generated and flows between the words and the meter, the meter and the line, the line and the stanza. So I'm going to read to you, uh, I've got two more poems. This one is a newish piece. It's called Eviction Notice 113. And I realize now that I was really blessed to grow up in the house of my childhood and only leave it when I got married and made my own house. And we lived at uh, 113 Blockhouse Bay Road. And this is about my mother passing away from cancer, but also about how the house became 
our mother and the changes that um, ensued after her diagnosis. We were also the party house in Avondale. Her house used to be the party. 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 The house has become her body. 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 Body party, body party, body party, body party, body party. The house has become her body. The house has become the party. The house has become her body. The house has become the party. The house has become, become, become mum. The house has become, become, become mum. The house has become mum. The house has become mum. The house has become a body apart. Mum has become a body apart. The house has become a body apart. Mum has become a body apart. Her body's become a body apart. The house has become a body apart. The house has become, 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 become. Her house has become her body apart. Ours has become her body apart. Ours has become a body apart. Ours has become a body apart. Body apart, body apart. Body party, body party, body party, body depart, body depart, body depart, body depart. Her house has become ours. Her house has become ours. The house has become ours. The house has become ours. Her house has become a body apart. Ours has become a body apart. Ours has become ours. Ours has become ours. Body party, body party, body party, body depart, body depart, body depart. Language in orbit, indeed. Um, I looked up another, uh, well, Seamus Heaney's just got so many powerful things, but he also says, if you have the words, there are always, there's always a chance you'll find the way. If you have the words, there's always the chance you'll find the way. And through that poem, I realized that even if they're the same words, the way they orbit changes the things around them. So because of the photo advertising the session, I thought I would finish up with the another commission poem. Um, Carl, I didn't have overnight. I have three months to come up with this um, commissioned poem um, for Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth to um, celebrate Commonwealth Day. Um, the Queen this was the Queen's 53rd attendance. This is her gig. She holds it every second Tuesday of every March of every year. Um, and it was my absolute honor to be able to um, be the poet 
that would present a poem on behalf of the 53 nations of the Commonwealth. Um, and so when I was uh, approached, I said, of course, absolutely. And they said, oh, there's just a few parameters. <laughs> I went, okay, I can deal with it. I'll just use it as a writing exercise. So they said, no longer than three minutes. I said, yes, fine. They said it would have to appeal to over a thousand school children from across the UK, heads of state, dignitaries, and the royal family. <laughs> yes. It had to be titled Unity. Yes. <laughs> and you had to represent all the 53 state <laughs> member countries in Westminster Abbey. And I thought, okay, well, that's, I'll try. And then they said, and it wasn't allowed to be political. So you can decide about the last one. Um, and I also thought I'd be performing it kind of out the back way, um, not at the transept. So I found myself with no podium, no mic. The mic was on the floor. And so there was just myself and Her Majesty just there and the Duke and the rest of the royal family and Kofi Annan just there and the British PM and so it was like I had to, I mean I was thankful that I memorised it, that's all, because <laughs> unity. Let's talk about unity here in London's Westminster Abbey. Did you know there's a London in Kiribati, Ocean Island, South Pacific Sea? We're connected by currents of humanity, alliances, allegiances, colonial histories. But the salt in the sea, like the salt in our blood, like the dust in our bones, our final return to mud means though 53 flags fly for our countries, they're stitched from the fabric of our unity. It's called the Va in Samoan philosophy. What you do affects me. What we do affects the land, sea, wildlife. Take the honeybee, nature's model of unity, pollinating from flower to seed. Bees thrive in hives, keeping their queen. <laughs> I know, she looked up, I looked down. <laughs> Unity keeps them alive, keeps them buzzing. They're key to our fruit and veggie supplies, but parasitic attacks and pesticides threaten the bee, then you, then me. It's all connected. That's unity. There's a you and an I in unity. Costs the earth and yet it's free. My granddad's from Tuvalu, and to be specific, it's plop bang in the middle of the South Pacific, the smallest of our 53 Commonwealth nations, the largest in terms of reading vast constellations. My ancestors were guided by sky and sea trails, and way before Columbus even hoisted his sails. What we do now matters to those who go before. We face the future with our backs, sailing shore to shore, for we're earning and saving 
for a common wealth, a common strong body, a common good health, means saving the ocean and saving the bee, means London's UK seeing London and the South Seas and sharing our thoughts over a cup of tea. There's a you and an I in unity, costs the earth and yet it's free. Thank you. My third quote for our third poet is from a poem by Hubert Witherford called Third World, which begins, it is not all that accessible to poetry, the language of a prosperous African talking in a South London drawing room about a future constitution for his country that will make human rights indisputable. Ali Cobby Eckerman's poetry directly challenges this assertion. The poems she writes articulate and make accessible the fact that human rights are indisputable. Ali toured Ireland in 2013 as Australian Poetry Ambassador and won the Kenneth Slesser Prize for Poetry. She was the inaugural recipient of the Tungunungunka Pintyanthi Fellowship. I think I added one extra. Um, foul in there, Ali, sorry. She attended the Iowa International Writing Program in 2014. Her memoir, Too Afraid to Cry, and the poetry collection, Inside My Mother, appeared last year. Please wel welcome Ali Cobby Eckerman. Thank you for a lovely introduction. Um, it's my absolute pleasure to be in, um, at, the, at the festival here, my first time to New Zealand. Um, something that felt a little bit overdue, we're neighbours, but I feel like uh, our countries differ a lot. I come to uh, New Zealand and everyone I've met, both black and white, seems very proud of this country. In Australia, sadly, we are losing our pride. The confusion of our governments to keep stripping away the rights of Indigenous people for mining, to continue the removal of children. We're losing language. I feel very guilty about how much I enjoy being out of my country. My poetry came about um, from a creative writing course that I did in Alice Springs at, uh, at the uh, Aboriginal um, TAFE. It was the year that my son was returned to me. He was 18 and a half. I'd wait in, waited 18 and a half years for my son. Four years before I'd met my mother. So if my poetry seems sad or angry. It's not intended. My poetry is a celebration of surviving a life in reverse.
When I sat down with my mother and asked her where she came from, she told me she came from Aldia, just down the road from Maralinga, where the British were given permission to test atomic bombs on our traditional land. She was five or six years old when they had to flee, flee uh, that place, the family. Ironically, when I ran away from my adopted family, I ran to Aldia and I spent two, two years there. My son was conceived there. So three generations blown apart with the ferocity of uh, nuclear. That land loved us enough that we are united. This poem's called Thunder, Raining Poison. A whisper arrives, 2,000, 2,000 or more. Did you hear it? That bomb, the torture of red sand turning green, the anguish of earth turned to glass. Did you hear it? 2,000, 2,000 or more. Tears we cried for our land, for the fear you gave us, for the sickness and the dying. 2,000 years of memory here. 2,000, 2,000 or more. Peaceful place, this place. Happy place till you come with your bombs. You stole our happiness with your poison ways. You stole our stories. 2,000, 2,000 or more. Our people gone missing. Did you hear it? Where's my grandfather? You seen him? Where's my daughter? You seen her? Mummy, you seen my mum? Dad. 2,000. 2,000 or more times I asked for truth. Do you know where they are? 2,000, 2,000 or more. Trees dead with arms to the sky. All the birds missing. No birdsong here. Just stillness, like a funeral. 2,000 or more. A whisper arrives. Did you hear it? It sounds like glass, our hearts breaking. But we are stronger than that. We always rise, us mob, 2,000, 2,000 or more. You can't break us. We're not glass. We are people. 2,000, 2,000 or more. Our spirits come together. We make a heart. Can you see it? In the fragments, it's there in the glass. 2,000, 2,000 or more. Our hearts grow as we mourn for our land. It's part of us. We love it, poisoned and all. <laughs> suffering begets suffering. Don't blame the victim. I can't stop drinking, I tell you true, since I watched my daughter perish. She burnt to death inside a car. I lost what I most cherish. I seen the angels hold her as I screamed with useless hope. I can't stop drinking, I tell you true. It's the only way I cope. I can't stop drinking, I tell you true, since I found my sister dead. She hung herself to stop the rapes. I found her in the shed. That rapist bastard still lives here. 
unpunished in this town. I can't stop drinking, I tell you true, since I cut her down. I can't stop drinking, I tell you true, since my mother passed away. They found her battered down the creek, I miss her more each day. My family blamed me for her death, their words have made me wild. I can't stop drinking, I tell you true, cause I was just a child. So if you see someone like me, who's drunk and loud and cursing, don't judge too hard, cause you don't know what sorrows we are nursing. Abstract. She remains beyond her imagination. No imprints mar her mind. Its undulating discourse informs a briny view. Large fish bones lie scattered on moist sand. A thin track cuts to the matrix below. The illusion of turquoise is centred with birth. The seawater spills a treasure of shells. At her feet, the murmur of legends crave her. One foot in water, one foot on sand. The tidal gravity keeps her grounded. Rough and ready art erupts from her. She breathes air into a dead gull. Sticking feathers in her eyes, she has resigned the human realm. She scribes patterns into her mind, and naked, she executes her future. I'll finish with this poem. Uh, this book is titled Inside My Mother. These are the poems that I wrote after uh, my mother passed away. I met her when I was 33. I knew her for 15 years. It was a very, very long grief. Um, when she went, because I was very, very grateful, but it just wasn't long enough. And this is my last love poem to Mum. My mother screams as I touch her hair, attempting to brush away the coarseness with my hands, to entwine twigs filled with leaves into her locks, a tiara of green to soften her face. And our tears dry now, my mother is frailing. She talks only to those who have gone before, no longer seeing my love, no longer needing. And the wailing bursts from our mouths as she sinks to the ground, her mother, the earth, my mother, the dying throws sand in her face, tasting the grit in her mouth and wailing louder, throws herself forward, pushing her breasts into the softness of the earth, her mother and my mother, the dying, crawls down into that final embrace, her conversation incoherent now, as if like a child she is practising words for the lifetime to come. And the syllables loud and guttural spill over the sand, her mother, the earth. And I walk away leaving her there, in that cradle, safely nestled in the roots of that tree, safe in her country 
our solace, her grave. One of my unexpected pleasures this year was to judge the poetry section of the Ockham New Zealand Book Awards. I'm actually frightened of judging book awards. They don't always go well for me. Um, but this year I judged with Selena Tusitala-Marsh and Elizabeth Cathan, 18 months worth of poetry, 60 plus books. It was exciting to see the range and talent of poetry in New Zealand. And of our 10, our long list of 10 finalists, four of them were were first books, which I thought was quite remarkable, and there was a, a poise and maturity and complexity there that was quite unexpected to us. And our fourth poet would have been the winner of the Jesse Mackay Prize for Best First Book of Poetry um, this year in the Book Awards, uh, Chris Teese, for his book, How to Be Dead in a Year of Snakes. And I just quick, want to quickly tell you the, the, the poem I chose. The fourth quote for our fourth poet is the opening lines of an Asian-American poet Kathy Song's poem, Fourth of July, which begins, because every window is open, made public, a bird could veer from the flock, dive down, fly through the house and still catch up by the time his more timid cousins would begin to miss his presence. And I selected those words because they have the same sort of lyrical poise that we discovered in our own Asian New Zealand poet, Chris, Chris Teese. And so I'd like to encourage you to um, purchase his book it's available um, out there with the, the rest of them and um, read a little bit more of his poetry and uh, discover him for yourself. My fifth quote for our fifth poet has to be the opening lines of Alan Silito's uh, poem, Fifth Avenue, which begins, a man plays bagpipes on Fifth Avenue, Gaelic whales stabbing at passers-by who wish its pliant beckoning would draw them through their fence of discontent to a field of freedom they can die in. Now, I chose these lines um, not because they remind me so much of Fiona Kidman's poetry as because they remind me of her novel, The Book of Secrets, which recounts the life of the charismatic and domineering Scottish preacher Norman MacLeod, who led a party of Highlanders into exile, and they eventually settle in Waipu in Northland, um, coming through their fence of discontent to a field of freedom they can die in, um, not helped by Norman's own messianic um, ambitions. But anyway, Fiona's writing spans more than 50 years. She's getting close to having published 30 books, novels, short stories, poetry, non-fiction and drama. And uh, she's won many awards nationally and internationally, an OBE and a DNZM for services to literature. And she's here to read to us from her poems and maybe tell us a little bit about what poetry means to her. Fiona. How wonderful to be here in Christchurch on National Poetry Day. Thank you very much for inviting me. I was, we were asked if we were Seamus Heaney or, or Emily Dickinson poets. How can one be not be both, I, I suppose, was my first response. But perhaps because of my Irish father, I am naturally a Seamus Heaney person. I, I, I'm moved 
deeply in my heart by the, the Glenmore sonnets, which have been poems which I have loved deeply, and the wonderful opening words of, of the first of those sonnets, vows ploughed into other open ground. And I think that idea of open ground and poetry speaks to me as Heaney himself spoke of, of the concrete reality. We talk, think of reality as sort of the dirty words of poetry and, um, and writing, but he, some, he found in his reality the truth, of, uh, the truth of the landscape, the truth of people, and the beauty of words which went into orbit, into creating and lifting them off the page and making them something magical and beautiful. So, yeah. Uh, a great influence for me. I grew up at the end of Darwin Road, which is um, a little place in the far north of New Zealand, in the countryside, and the countryside was my own first early influences. Landscape has always been important to me. But I thought I'd begin with a, a poet a poem about living at the end of Darwin Road, at the end of World War II, in a, a little army hut that my dad took onto a piece of land there. And so it's called Electricity. In all the marvelous lights of the world, we were able to read books. Before electricity was fed along our road, we read by candlelight or a kerosene lantern those flickering fires turning words into, into unsteady little crickets that chirped across the pages and followed us to bed, and, sorry, and followed us to bed to keep us awake. When the power board came and brought the lines past our gate, we could snap a cord from the ceiling as the bulb showered us with steady yellow light, a trifle dull perhaps, but still, it was easier to decipher the script, the secrets of the characters on the page. We did not foresee pylons that strode over landscapes, carrying charges more powerful than lightning into the blazing cities of the world, or television, or dishwashers, or hair dryers, or can openers that did the work by themselves, or electric guitars strumming, or the Eiffel Tower shimmying when the French won the football, or how it would darken when they lost. Nor did we concern ourselves with the national grid, and how people would starve or freeze to death in their homes when it failed. It was enough that the green wireless on the shelf told us stories for a change and that I learned to waltz with my father to its music in the kitchen. Thank you. And so we're talking about this Irishness on my dad. Um, and so I thought I'd read a poem about, about Christmas with him before and after the fact of him. Christmas, one. We ate our festive dinner in the shade of a plum tree, awash with sweet dappled light. My mother had filled the pudding with threepenny pieces. 
Beyond lay a belt of gum trees, rustling and shifting, as if unsettled by the voice of my father singing Christmas carols. There we were, three of us, lost in a summer landscape my father never called home. I know how he longed for it to snow. I still hear him singing, silent night, a catch in his throat, the roar of the midday sun at his elbow. Two. Here to the south of the country, it is summer too. The scent of wild honeysuckle escapes along the edge of the stairs. The soft red foam of Pahutakawa trees spreads beneath this clifftop layer. I lay branches on the table amongst the crimson crackers, the gaily colored napkins. Jesus was banished years ago, along with the Queen's speech, those rituals my father loved. I tell his ghost at the table that I'm sorry it had to be this way and I wish him here, but I think he would like it well enough how this family is talking heart to heart. I had the great joy and pleasure of being um, in Montan as the Catherine Mansfield Fellow in 2006, an amazing and life-changing experience for myself and my husband Ian. I loved it so much. This is called Provence in the Afternoon. The last shaggy sunflowers of summer in Provence stand in a clear glass jug beside me. They are smaller in autumn and a richer yellow gold stout-stemmed and sturdy. Beyond the balcony, feather-bearded palm trees have been shaved. Remember, love, the way we walk down the road at nights, the children on our hips, one boy, one girl, just like the song. Once we stood outside in the molten dark, watching the flicker of fireworks. These things are not connected, just a few random scraps of this and that. Must a poem be about anything in particular? Can't words just lead us from one place to another? The children are at home and we are here. They write about their interesting, capable lives. Grow up and leave, they told us. So here we are. In June, there was a blood moon, a savage thing, and that too is merely incidental, neither here nor there in the scheme of things, how we hold fast. And the last poem is called Hey You. Just a little poem. Hey You. When I stand at the kitchen bench, first glass of wine in the hand, these characters slide alongside, sly and demanding. Write me, they say. Write me, write me. Write me, write me, hissing in my ear, slapping my shoulder, while another one stands close and touches my thigh. Write me, he murmurs, write me, you can. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. In our list, Bill Manhire is up sixth, and for our sixth poet, I wanted to reference a couple of things, and one was, uh, and I chose a poem 
which is actually written by Catherine Mansfield, and it's called On a, a Young Lady's Sixth Anniversary. And I'll just quickly read you a couple of lines. It's one of these poems that shows why we revere Mansfield as a short story writer. Um, Baby Babbles, only one now to sit up has begun. Little Babbles, quite turned two, walks as well as I and you. And that's all I'm going to read of it. Um, I referenced it partly because it refers to the brain of Catherine Mansfield, Bill's wonderful, um, quirky little uh, novella that uh, goes around the bottom of the South Island, which was his childhood territory. Um, but also because when my son Aaron was born in 1996, um, the most unusual present he received um, was a limited edition signed and autographed copy of Bill's Antarctic poem, Hoosh, inscribed to Aaron, good luck with all of it. And Aaron has had good luck with all of it so far, for which I'm very grateful, Bill. And um, I'd like to uh, hand you over to our first poet laureate, uh, Bill Manhire, founder of the International Institute for Modern Letters um, and uh, recent publisher of a book of short fiction called The Stories of Bill Manhire, but best known to all of us as a poet. Thank you, Paul. Uh, I'm going to read a poem that <clears throat> would only make absolute sense to someone who was born in Invercargill on December the 27th, 1946, but some of it may come across to others. Uh, I, I, I wrote this poem because I was, I was trying to understand at some stage, as I often do, why I never became a famous rock and roll uh, musician. And I, I started noting down the musical instruments I had when I was a little kid. I had a mouth organ, I had a ukulele, I had bongo drums, I had everything. Uh, and then I started listing off all the other stuff I had, because the 1950s, which is my childhood decade, is the one that gets kind of a very bad rap these days. You know, the photographs were still all in black and white. And, uh, it's supposed to have been a time when we were culturally deprived and everything was thin and empty, but my God, I had so much stuff. It was just extraordinary. So this poem is just a, a piece of rhyming doggerel which lists off all the things I had uh, as a small child. <coughs> and uh, my, my problem in, in finishing it was, was to find a particular thing that I had when I was a kid that was a true thing, uh, but that would also speak back to all the other things that I had. God, this is a real, you know, uh, consumer sort of poem. Anyway, 1950s. My cricket bat, my football boots, my fishing rod, my hula hoop, my cowboy chaps, my scooter, drafts, happy families, yucca, Ludo, snap, my Davy Crockett hat, my bicycle, my bow and arrow, my puncture kit, my cat, the straight and narrow, fancy that. Snakes and ladders, alcoholics, pick-up sticks, my comics, my periscope, my pirate sword, the ocean main, the good lord, my fort, my raft, my tunnel, my flippers, my togs, my snorkel, my magic wand, my colour-changing silks, my catapult, my kite, school milk, my xylophone, my knuckle bones, my boxing gloves, my ukulele, my bubble gum, my bongo drums, the royal tour, Aunt Daisy, my flat top, my crew cut, my pack of cards, my tree hut, my hornby train, my autograph book, my secret code, my sideways look, 
the famous five, the secret seven, Tarzan of the apes, my idea of heaven, the empty sky, Hayere Mai, my view master, sticking plaster, my go outside and play, my Anzac day, my tip up truck, my saying fuck, my did you not hear what I said, my Mr. Potato Head, my go to bed, my do you wanna bet, my chemistry set, my I forget, my clove hitch, my reef knot, my I forgot, Korea, measles, mumps, down in the dumps, my just William, counting to a million, the Invercargill march, my false moustache, the king and I, reach for the sky, my stamps from Spain and San Marino, the winter show, the Beano, Cinerama, orange fizz, my toy soldiers, Suez, my pocket knife, eternal life, the black prince, my fingerprints, my plink-a-plunk, you dirty skunk. My plunk, a plink, invisible ink. Uh, I, I was thinking about Paul's choice between Seamus Heaney, words orbiting, and uh, Emily Dickinson, poems taking the top of your head off, uh, or making you so cold no fire can ever warm you, I think is how that uh, passage goes on. Uh, but, but for me, the best definition of poetry is the one by Paul Valéry, where he says, a poem is a prolonged hesitation between sound and sense, which I take to mean that a, a poem can never quite make up its mind whether it's about music or about meaning, but it can't be about just one or the other. It has to hover between the two. <coughs> anyway, that's my... 10 cents worth on that. Uh, this is a strange piece of synchronicity and not a piece of planning, uh, given the poem that Carl Stead read at the beginning. But a fortnight next Thursday, September the 15th, it will be the 100th anniversary of the New Zealand Division's entry into the Battle of the Somme. Uh, and I was a group of, I, I, was, I was not a group of poets, I was one of a group of poets. Uh, from, I suppose you would call them the combatant nations, uh, who were commissioned by an organization in the UK called 1418 Now. You might have seen some of those images of poppies in the Tower of London. They've, <coughs> they've been commissioning a lot of public artwork in the UK. Anyway, they commissioned uh, new poems about the Somme, and I'm going to read you the poem that I wrote. Uh, it was, of course, a terrible and terrifying thing. Uh, the Somme, one in seven New Zealand soldiers lost their life. Uh, just like that. Uh, the New Zealand forces were known as the silent division uh, to some people because it said they didn't sing as they marched. Uh, I sort of want to think they were just typically laconic, you know. Uh, but at one stage I thought I might write some new soldiers' songs for them because you hover over a, a request like that. Uh, but everything I did came out sounding like really bad Leonard Cohen, so I gave up on <laughs> the soldier songs. Uh, I also found myself reading a lot of journals and letters and growing aware of just how difficult it was for those men to find words that would accurately convey, or given that they were writing to parents and loved ones, might even disguise the experiences they were having. Uh, and then as I read more widely, I grew aware of what I think of now as an obvious fact, uh, which is that there are many graves in France and Belgium where it's known that a New Zealand soldier or some bits of a New Zealand soldier 
are buried, but the name of the person isn't known. And those gravestones simply say, a New Zealand soldier of the Great War, known unto God. Uh, so the poem I wrote in the end was an attempt to give individuality to a few of those New Zealand men who lie beneath uh, those headstones. So I've got 14 tiny poems, uh, most of them in the voices of the New Zealand dead. Uh, and I know this is a long preamble, but I'll just explain one or two other things. Late in the poem, the speaker, uh, or one of the speakers, is New Zealand's unknown warrior, who was uh, disinterred in Caterpillar Valley and reinterred in Wellington on Remembrance Day 2004. Uh, great view out across Wellington he's got. Uh, but some of you may recall that uh, his, his new location and his new quarters, as it were, proved irresistible to the local skateboarders who had to be dealt to and, and were successfully. Uh, there's one small Maori phrase in the poem, kia ahatia, which as I understand it means something like, so what, or who cares, or big deal. Uh, Maori weren't involved in much direct fighting uh, on the Somme, though in fact they were very, very much in the firing line. And they were famous as diggers, uh, the pioneer battalion, because of course they had to dig not just through mud, but through bodies as well. And they dug a famous communications trench called T Turk Lane, which must have had something to do with Gallipoli, of course. Uh, and one last thing, the commissioning letter invited the poets to bring the Somme experience, if they could, into the contemporary world, uh, which is why the poem I wrote ends in the Mediterranean Sea with a present-day speaker who, like many other victims of war, is now known only unto God. And for some reason, though clearly I'm not going to make it sound like that, I imagine the voice at the very end of the poem belongs to a 12-year-old girl. Uh, and there's a little epigraph, poets like epigraphs, so my poem has an epigraph, a couple of lines from Walt Whitman, which simply go, to you, your name also. Did you think there was nothing but two or three pronunciations in the sound of your name. Known unto God. Boy on horseback, boy on a bicycle, boy all the way from Tolaga Bay, blown to bits in a minute. Once I was small bones in my mother's body, just taking a nap, now my feet can't find the sap. In Devil's Wood, I broke my leg and went beneath a tank, strange beast. Last thing I heard was the guns all going, you know, blankety, blankety, blank. My last letter home turned out entirely pointless. I wrote whiz-bang a dozen times to try and say the noises. Well, I was here from the start, amazing, straight off the farm, a tiry mouth. I lifted my head and ran like the blazes, went south. I whistled while I could, then I was gone for good. So strange to be underground and single and dreaming of Dunedin but 
such a picnic. The last thing I saw was a tin of ideal milk. I remember my father and my mother. They yelled, they cursed, my whole head hurt. Up on the wire, I couldn't hear a thing. I, who had spent my whole life listening. They dug me up in Caterpillar Valley and brought me home. Well, all of the visible bits of me. Now people arrive at dawn and sing, and I have a new word, skateboarding. Not all of me is here inside. I built Turk Lane before I died, Piahatia. Somewhere between Colombo and Cairo, the ocean seemed to dip. I thought I could hear the stamping of horses coming from it. They taught me how to say refugee. Then my father and mother floated away from me. This was on the way to Lampedusa. By now we were all at sea. We were all at sea. They called out while they could. They called out while they could. Then they were gone for good. I'll just finish with a tiny, tiny poem which I want to dedicate to our Minister of Tourism, John Key. Uh, it's called A Really Nice Trip. A Really Nice Trip. We went up Pleasant Valley, after which we came back down to Pleasant Flat. Then we went all the way out to Pleasant Point. It was a really nice trip. Thank you all for your patience. I apologise you've run just five minutes over time, but uh, in one minute I'm going to ask you to thank our poets, uh, C.K. Stead, Selena Tusi-Tala-Marsh, Ali Kobi-Ekerman, Bill Manhire, and Fiona Kidman. Um, but before I do that, I want to remind you that there is a bookstore outside, there are poets available to sign books, and I have a final quote from the poet Kenneth Rexroth. I've had it with these cheap sons of bitches who claim they love poetry but never buy a book. Thank you for coming. <laughs>